the most powerful thing community radio stations can do is go out the door with their field recorders and collect the sentiments and the stories of the people in their community who are suffering from the attack on public media and from the loss of a number of things that are really on the table. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. I'm Paul Reismanel, and I'm one of your hosts. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here, co-host of Radio Survivor. And we have Jennifer on, on the line via Skype. Yes. Hello. Greetings. Jennifer waits. <laughs> waits for us to call her in. <laughs> well, I didn't know if I was introducing myself fully. I am Jennifer Waits. You are now. You are fully introduced, and yes. uh, you know we're going to be taking up uh, some college radio news and getting and digging into community radio some more this week. Again, a topic of community radio in the times of Trump. So joining us a little later in the show will be Sally Kane. She is the uh, CEO of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. So she will be able to tell us, of course, a bit more about that organization and tell us some of the advice that they have for community stations, as well as some of the action in Washington that they're tracking on behalf they, of community stations. They put out a white paper. They did put out a white paper. So we'll put that in the show notes, of course, at uh, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 81. And uh, we'll also, uh, we'll be talking about it. But uh, first, Jennifer, we've got college radio has been kind of uh, bubbling back up in uh, like social media. It seems to be a trending topic this week. Uh, tell it's us always why. trending here at Radio Survivor. So we, we get to roll our eyes and, and say, I've been there since the beginning. I know. I talk about it and think about it every day, but I guess, I guess not everybody does. Surprisingly. Imagine that. I know. Imagine that. Um, yeah. So the... The world of college radio is all abuzz because there was a long-form article about college radio on Pitchfork this week. For indie music aficionados, Pitchfork is, you know, like the Bible. So Yeah, it's like as to our as to this current time period, our generation, it's what uh, Rolling Stone was to the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, so people were excited to see what Pitchfork had to say about college radio. And, and you know, anytime there's a big trend piece about anything, <laughs> you know, if you're an insider in that world, um, people will have like a bone to pick with various aspects. So, like so there have been, yeah, so there have been some interesting conversations after the article what, came out. What, what was the deal with the article in the first place? So um, the article is called, Does College Radio Even Matter Anymore? I, I wrote about it in my column this week that, you know, it's certainly a clickbaity title. And so that attracted a lot of attention because, of course, many of us immediately respond, of course, college radio matters. <laughs> um, they do have to ask provocative questions in their headlines exactly. these days or, 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 I mean, it, or no one reads it. It's part of it's part of uh, the whole game, um, and then the subtitle, the subheading of the article says, "How left of the dial stalwarts are fighting to stay alive." So, there are portions of the article that are discussing kind of this this question that um, mainstream media brings up repeatedly: <laughs> is is college radio dying? Because I think, you know, in the past number of years, there have been high-profile license sales, um, and it's, there's been a changing 
media landscape and music landscape. Yeah, see and every so that, episode of Radio Survivor <laughs> where yeah, we've talked so, to you. So that brings up the question as to whether or not college radio is dying, which, you know, anytime I talk to <laughs> the press, that's pretty much their question. <laughs> Jennifer, is college radio dying? <laughs> no, it's not <laughs> okay. dying. So we can put that, um, we can put that to rest. Yeah. And move so, on from there. So this is how the article is framed by its headline and its subhead. But it's actually quite a lengthy piece um, with a lot more nuance to it than just that screaming headline. Um, they do some reporting. I, they go talk to yeah, people. They, yeah. He, um, the author talked to a whole bunch of people, including me. And I was happy that he included some of my thoughts in the piece because I think it added some perspective that I think was important. You know, when, when people talk to me about, or when they ask me, is college radio dying? Uh, one of the recent things that I've been bringing up is the number of, college radio groups that applied for low power FM licenses. And I've been using that as part of my evidence that there's still interest in college radio because college radio groups are still creating new stations all the time, including low power FM stations. So to me, that's part of the proof for not only that college radio isn't dying, but also that FM isn't dying. But, um, um, so, but what 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 outside of the college radio world did did he talk to folks who were looking in from outside? Because I think that that much of the sometimes the the question is college radio dying or is college radio relevant? Part of that question is is it relevant to anyone who isn't a someone who is a college radio broadcaster or one of the hardcore listeners? Did they did they get at that at all? Yeah, I mean, so he. As as you might imagine from a music publication like Pitchfork, he, he talked to a lot of people in the music industry. So he talked to musicians. He talked to people um, from record labels. And he also talked to people in college radio like me. So he talked to some folks from college radio organizations. And, you know, so some of that was framed around college radio's intersection with the music industry which is also just a portion of what college radio does. A portion of what college sure. radio but, does. But for, but for Pitchfork, we can understand why that would be their yeah. emphasis. What What did they say? Totally. I mean, so I mean, what What did these folks from the industry say? What did musicians say about college radio? Um, well, you know, it sounds like most people were saying that college radio still mattered, but then if you look at it from a very broad perspective, um people in the industry are saying that it matters less than it used to. Um, but I think, you know, some critiques after the article came out are that there was an emphasis on bigger market stations. The examples of stations that the author wrote about tended to be in big cities and college radio's influence, even on the music community is different from market to market too. So if you look at, the impact of a particular station in a small town, it's going to be a totally different story. So I, I thought that was an interesting critique. And are the, um, but are these music industry folks? I mean, I mean, do they actually care about the small towns? I mean, it depends on, I, I think it always depends on your perspective. So if you are marketing more underground music, then it might be college radio might be your bread and butter and, and you might say, yeah, it's as important as it ever was because I need to be 
talking to these smaller communities, these niche communities. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you are marketing mainstream artists to mainstream stations, you're probably not going to care a whole lot about college radio or about small towns, right? And so when, when these folks in the music industry say that college radio still is important, what is it important for? Can we, can we actually put like a point on that? Because, you know, it, I think there's a lot of reasons why it could be important, but w- w- really why is it important to, to like a band or to the music industry? Um, I don't have the quotes from the music industry. Well, just, you can just give, it, give, give me a sense for, for, for why it is. I mean, it just sort of, I think it's always important to kind of draw this out, right? Because I think those of us who, who are so acquainted and live this every day, we take for granted why it's important, right? Both in oh. terms of like an artistic standpoint, but also in terms of other standpoints that, 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 that might you know, really uh, change somebody's mind who's coming at it from a different direction. So, so you know, can you give a sense for like what, why it's important? Oh, like why, why? generally, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, so um, radio has always served as a promotional tool for artists. So record labels send music to radio stations hoping for airplay. Um, and then musicians often come through and play on radio stations. Um, and, and many college radio stations have a regular, um, like, like a stream of artists coming through, like where I am at KFJC, we have artists coming through the station, sometimes multiple artists in a week. Um, so artists will come in and play live on the air or do an interview. And that helps promote their record or a show that they have in that particular town. Um, and radio stations also work closely with music venues and giving away tickets and promoting shows. A lot of stations have concert calendars that they read every day. So, so there is like definitely a music industry connection for many radio stations and for many college radio stations. And then, and, and then why is this important to the culture then? I mean, so, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I'm drawing this out because I think, you know, someone could say as a counter argument, well, that's great. I mean, so why do we care about college radio if it's just basically a big advertisement for uh, the music industry, if it, if it, you know, if it, even if they're not getting paid? So why should, why should the culture at large care then about this, about this interplay, about this relationship between artists and to some extent the music industry and stations? Well, for many artists, um, they don't have access to larger commercial radio stations. So, you know, there can be a whole music ecosystem that's happening in Bowling Green, Ohio, or San Francisco, California, where you're hearing particular artists who are playing at particular clubs in your hometown. And um, it's part of a vibrant local scene, whether it's touring artists or local artists. Um, but there's this whole ecosystem surrounding it that college radio stations are often a part of. And I think it's just an important part of the artistic culture. You know, I think that's an important part of life yeah. <laughs> is, is seeing art, hearing art, hearing musicians. Um, and there are fewer and fewer opportunities to hear that on on the radio airwaves. So I, I would articulate an answer to Paul's question just now saying that like college radio and community radio also represents a world in which people who love music for its own sake, get to make choices and promote what they love. And 
to a great extent, if not you know entirely true, uh, it's not because of money. They're not telling the listener something that they're getting. They're, it's not paid advertising. And in so much of the rest of the radio landscape, it's a commercial enterprise, and it really, really, really is all about money. So for there to be somewhere where radio is uh, is practiced for the passion and for the love of a culture for music, uh, still very important. Yeah, I, I asked that question. I mean, I, I preface it, but I'll explain a little bit more because I think that it is true that for those of us who know about it and are immersed in it, we, we take these aspects for granted. And these are perhaps some of the most important aspects. But because we take them for granted, we articulate arguments that are sort of lowered down the chain. <laughs> if You know what I mean? Yeah. That we don't get yeah. the, the big, big highlight there. And and so it seems to me, and, and I'd love to get your take on this, Jennifer, this seems to me then when, when – uh, a publication like Pitchfork, which is very, very popular and very influential, not just in sort of so-called alternative or indie music, whatever that means anymore, but really influential, frankly, on kind of American popular music culture in general. When they take a look at this and articulate these ideas, it seems like that's that's a boost for college radio and, and at least holds at least some potential that um, either listeners some places might – Look for a college station or re-engage with a college station they've Opt forgotten about. into clicking on a college radio station's website exactly. stream. Or, or, yeah. or might put it back on the radar of somebody, a, a musician, a band, a small label, or a big label somewhere because it, they've just sort of forgotten because they took it for granted at one point and it just kind of got left behind. Do you, think, do you think that this is true? Do you think it really has this possible effect? I think so. And I think, um, you know, of course, a lot of college radio – participants are critiquing various parts of the article, but I think overall it's actually a loving tribute to college radio. Um, and, and the, the folks that they interview from labels and bands talk about how important college radio is today, you know, that it's still important. It's a place where you can discover things that are more underground. And it's a place where bands are still being, um, are still getting their start. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people who have forgotten that. Um, and even a few years ago, I remember people saying, oh, I haven't listened to college radio in decades. You know, is it still around? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of incredible to me that, that uh, you know, people will say something like that. But again, I am not with, your average But with hundreds person. of channels, <laughs> with, with podcasts and satellite radio, with streaming radio, with Pandora, with Spotify – with so many things to choose from, it's easy, I think, for people to fall into habits and mm -hmm. often into a habit that maybe they're already tired of. You know, they're like, oh, I'm tired of my Pandora stations. I've heard someone say I'm looking for something interesting or new and not always quite knowing where to uh, how to refresh that. And often, you know, it's work. I mean, you know, it's work to go find things. It's work to think, oh, maybe there is some other radio station because all the radio stations in our area are crap. Right. right. Not realizing that maybe there is one on the left end of the dial. Never mind that it might have, you know, a 500 watt transmitter. So it doesn't come in everywhere you go. There's all these, I think, things that continue to continue to sort of block out. So so that's why, you know, I think being able to rearticulate this in many different ways, even if the argument seems mundane to many of us, is important. And then. Yeah. He, and he shares he shares some some cool anecdotes from some prominent musicians talking about um, how college radio has either informed them or delighted them or 
even about some of the magical experiences they've had as listeners, like catching something really unusual on the radio. So I think you're right. You know, those sorts Hmm. of quotes in here might pique people's interest. And then we have another story that's unfortunately a little less celebratory um, about a station. Well, a station that's not even yet on the air, really, I think, at the University of Washington, uh, Bothell. Right. Yeah, it's um, U-Wave Radio, which I visited back in October 2014. So you can <laughs> take a look at my station tour. And so I visited them. Um, they're an online station at University of Washington, Bothell, and they went through the process, applied for a new low-power FM license, and are lucky to now hold a construction permit for a low-power FM station. Um, But the school administration has sort of changed their mind about this, and Mm. and they're saying that they're not going to support the LPFM going forward. So their students are trying to figure out what's going on. Um, the chancellor has not met with them personally. Um, they're trying to get a meeting. They're trying to learn more about how this decision was made. And they actually asked their, one of the senators, um, in Washington, they asked, to have the senator send a letter of inquiry to the University of Washington to find out what exactly is going on. Um, U.S. Senator Patty Murray. Um, and they haven't heard back from her yet, but they were hoping that she would send a letter of inquiry so that they could learn more about why this decision is being made. Does that, does that, I mean, <laughs> that's weird. Is, does that usually make sense to try to get a senator involved in a in a low-power FM college radio station. We're talking about a community that uh, looks like it's a little northeast of Seattle, by the way. Well, she I think she's from Bothell originally. Okay. So she has some, we some have, personal we interest. We have a Bothell uh, alum well, it probably in, never, in the Senate. In these sorts of cases, it probably never hurts to get somebody who who can who is more likely to get a meeting. <laughs> to get an answer. To get an answer involved. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I mean, at some level. These days. These uh, days, the senators are kind of busy. They're a little busy, but at some know, level, yeah. every <laughs> university receives state and federal funding. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would kind of think maybe calling a state senator or state representative might be also uh, the mayor of Bothell might know. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, but even someone who holds purse strings, which would be like a state representative or or a state senator. So, but it's unfortunate, right? Because I, I mean, I've been following this as well because, you know, I, I am acquainted with uh, the advisor of that station. um, And it seems as though he knows no more than anyone else knows. Uh, There really has been no explanation from the, uh, from the administration about why they're suddenly decided to no longer support. Basically, they want to turn the construction permit back into the FCC, right? I know. It's super unfortunate. Um, and administra- uh, a representative from the university um, gave a quote to Real Change um, and and said basically that it had to do with the timeline and they didn't think that the station would be able to meet the timeline before the construction permit ran out. But, but behind the scenes, I've heard that that's just simply not true and that the people working on the station feel like they could still meet the timeline to get the station on the air. So there's definitely mixed messages going on. Um, And I know that 
I know students are working to fight this and an alum, a former station manager wrote a lengthy blog post about, about this and her opposition to it. Hmm. So it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I, I think I'd never heard of um, writing to a senator about a college radio challenge like this. And I, I applaud them for taking on a novel approach. Jennifer, do you know if this station, you said it's, it's currently an online station, right? Yeah. And is it, is it music, a hundred percent music? Is it, do they do news and public affairs on the campus? It's yeah, it's a variety of things. Um, and in fact, um, when I visited a few years ago, there was a lot of passion surrounding their public affairs programming. I think I even, I think the person who toured me around was in charge of news and public affairs. So Ah, to take um, a, take a second look at that tour then. Yeah, it was a big part of the station. Um, so yeah, you know, low power FM is such an incredible opportunity and people spend, spent so much time working on their proposals and their applications. Uh, so to me, it's just heartbreaking to hear about something like this, where all this work has gone into it. And then a decision is made kind of on the fly with not much explanation and not much conversation with students about why it's happening. So I personally am hoping that they're able to change the minds of the administration, because I think at the 11th hour, it's sure. just tragic. So Jennifer, you you often uh, report on stories like this where, where stations that were on the air uh, get shut down uh, uh, overnight and, and then and then uh, students and fans of the station have to organize. Is, do you know if anything like that is taking place in this case with a station that was about to, to try to get on the air? It, well, it sounds like they are. Um, and and they actually have the benefit of working with Sabrina Roach. Um, it, it's funny, like um, the University of Washington site posted back in November, you know, they announced that U-Wave Radio has been selected as a participant in the LPFM Accelerator Pilot Program, a program organized by Sabrina Roach from right. Brown Paper Tickets. Sabrina Roach, so, a doer and frequent guest of the Radio Survivor Program. Yeah, who, who sort of so, a, I'm going to call her like a Johnny Appleseed of Low Power FM in the Pacific Northwest region. She's really doing a lot of work uh, yeah, to she really get people on the same page in that community. Organize a lot of stations there. and um, The multi-dozen you know, stations of the Seattle Pacific Northwest region. Yeah, and so she's been specifically helping them. And I know that they have um, a couple of grants they've received. So it, it feels huh. like they've been doing everything right and have been super organized in preparations for LPFM. They're definitely, people are talking. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for bringing that story to our attention. And of course, we'll have links to your station tour as well as as your coverage of this story in the show notes. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for uh, this update. And uh, we'll have you on next week where you'll be able to share with us a couple of your radio station tours. So we're really looking forward to that. Yes, from small towns. Small town radio. Right. We're left out of the pitchfork article, so we will <laughs> we will include that as our um, as our way of including all kinds of radio yeah, stations. As we always do here on the coasts, we just we just forget. We call it flyover country, and we erase it from our brains, and and that no, sometimes that comes all. back to bite us, doesn't it? All right, thanks, no. Jennifer. Thank you. And now we'd like to welcome Sally Kane, who is the CEO of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Uh, welcome to Radio Survivor, Sally. 
Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And we've mentioned uh, the NFCB on the show before a few times, but you know, would you mind just briefly telling folks uh, what the NFCB is and what you do? Sure, sure. The National Federation of Community Broadcasters is a 40-year-old organization, which is really basically a trade organization representing community-based broadcasters across the country. And our mission is is really quite simple. We really are just here to um, provide services that advance public media organizations so that they can best serve their communities. And I should say to your listeners that what I'm talking about when I say community media organizations is sort of a subset within public broadcasting in that uh, most of the programming at a community station is actually designed and created by volunteers who are trained. So these are locally based, locally focused community development organizations that happen to use radio as a medium for building community. Wonderful. That's a great definition. I like that. That that actually really helps to try. <laughs> Paul's, Paul's going to go back and transcribe that yeah, one yeah, so that he can use it next week. So often, right, the, we're called upon to define community radio, especially since very often listeners are more familiar with public radio. It's very easy to conflate them. And, and, and there are stations that sometimes carry, say, public radio programming. But I think that that, that definition helps to, to really, uh, really put it in, in, in stark relief. Um, but at the moment, you know, so here we are with with a new president, you know, a new FCC and the challenges that often come with a new president. Oh, this new president is uh, unique, shall we say, <laughs> compared to even previous Republican administrations. Right. On the one hand, we have uh, um, we have a, a new experience of an old uh, familiar uh, territory where we know that that Republican-controlled administrations with Republican-controlled Congresses uh, put a Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding at risk. Yeah, That's arts an old funding story. in general, but yeah, and then because they, they often they uh, make the accusation that CPP funding yeah. goes to fund you know liberal in left wing uh, uh, biased programming. And that's, and that's a story that can go back decades. It goes back decades. And then on the other hand, we also are in a in a Trump era when where when there's uncertainty. When there's uncertainty, and you know, and, and the threats that to to eliminate it altogether. Together seem seem to be more real. Is are we are, are we estimating this correctly, Sally? Well, so so I think that um, there there is one sort of interesting phenomena that I've been noticing, which is over the years um, we've seen moderate Republicans among the citizenry leave that party to become independent or unaffiliated voters. And so I don't think it's specific necessarily to Republican administrations that funding for the arts and and public media comes under fire, but it does seem to come it does seem to become a political football. And and you're absolutely correct that this is this is just unprecedented tenor in so many ways that's going on. It's not just that the funding for public broadcasting is being turned into a political football, but the, the, the media itself is under massive attack here. So, so that's kind of what's interesting to me through all these years. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of used to seeing the same players come out and say, we need to get rid of funding for the corporation for public broadcasting. 
And then there's this huge public outcry that says no. And when you look at the public outcry, you find um, remarkable bipartisanship in that and 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 actually um, really strong listening levels among many Republicans in the country. So that's usually why it doesn't go anywhere. Um, but this is definitely an interesting time to be in public media and media in general. And I would say, you know, there, there are definitely some unique uh, variables that that are that are playing. M- maybe I should talk a bit about CPB, or do people yeah. kind of? Okay, I, that was my next question. How important is Co- Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding for the community radio uh, uh, industry that you represent? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, NFCB has about 180 member stations from across the country. Our primary constituencies are smaller market stations that tend to serve rural communities, communities of color, and underserved constituencies within urban populations. And so, you know, we are mobilized always to kind of bring to the table the experiences of smaller Um, organizations within public media. Now, that said, we have about 68 stations within our membership that receive what are called community service grants or CSG grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that's their primary mechanism for dispersing funds out into, you know, the public media industry is through these CSG grants. They have a much smaller pot of money that they use for program initiatives, you know, such as American Graduate, um, the local or producing projects, a lot of, a lot of um, resources in division maker fil- films and other, um, trying to increase diversity in public television and, and public radio. So, so that's their focus. When you look at the 68 CSG stations at NFCB, what I think people really need to understand is that if you are to defund the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, there are certainly many stations that aren't receiving CPB funding that would not be impacted. But those that are, are ones that tend to have been, been in operation for quite some time. And often you find that the um, CSG grant is 30 to 50% of their budget. So, oh, wow. I, yeah. So I kind of, I mean, for, for, a, for a WNYC, this CSG grant is a drop in the bucket. For a little KVNF community radio in Paonia, Colorado, it's a big percentage of their budget. And and I like to try and and um, remind people of the uh, long legacy of infrastructure investment by our country and by our taxpayers in areas of our country that are sparsely populated or under-resourced. And so, for example, you have rural electric cooperatives around the country. Without those rural electric cooperatives, vast tracts of, of this nation wouldn't even have electricity. And that's because it's not it's not a winning business proposition to provide these basic services in areas where there's a lot of space and not a lot of people. So why do you do it? Because those spaces where there's not a lot of people are also the spaces where our food, our air, our common natural resources, and our our open space and wilderness are. These are the stewards of those resources. And so in order for us to have those resources – 
so that urban populations have higher concentrations of jobs and wealth, then we, we, we have to be in concert with having compassion and having support for the people who actually steward and live in those communities. And that's what, that's what the CSG grants really um, do a lot for, actually, is to try and make sure that there's universal access. So CPB was started by an act of Congress in 1967, the Public Broadcasting Act, and it is the primary steward of federal government investment in public broadcasting. It's not the be-all, end-all, but in terms of the federal government investment, that's why CPB was established, so that it wouldn't be used as, you know, um, a, a football as various administrations came and went um, of either party. That isn't exactly how it's worked out, but its intention was to be that firewall. And it sounds like even though your CPB grantees make up about a third of of your uh, stakeholders, of your constituency there at the NFCB, it sounds like the elimination of this funding would disproportionately affect these rural stations and stations that serve communities that likely don't have much other local broadcast service at all, public radio or otherwise. Is, that, is, is my perception correct? Absolutely. Of the total 580 grantees in um, CPB's CSG program, 220 of those are considered rural. At NFCB, um, 65% of our membership is considered rural. So there's a big hit right there to those stations. And as I mentioned, they, they rely on that infrastructure funding because they're living in, in less populated areas. And as you know, in public media, the business model is primarily listener support. So, you know, how, how do you do that in an area that doesn't have exponentially growing population or, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that you could tap into if you just up your development effort. You're literally signing up cows and horses to try and get more members in some of these areas. <laughs> right. And and these stations, I'm sure, are also participants in the emergency alert system and provide a lot of really important, necessary local information on top of obviously music and some news and public affairs and things like this, you know, and 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 in these areas might be places where uh, cell phone coverage isn't is is consistent or you know it, it is is harder to get and where broadband others internet. broadband internet or and other sorts internet, of need, right. yeah mobile or broadband might be more difficult to get is that about right? Yes, I mean particularly in Indian country, which is how my native station leaders refer to um, the terrain that they're talking about is why I use the term. Um, broadband is is not universally accessible at all, and for many people in rural communities across the country, you know, we all just know when the when the cell phone's going to go dead. You know, you you might be talking and saying, "I'll call you in ten minutes once I get around." You know, X Y Z or you know, the infrastructure is expensive. And and now, interestingly, back to my um, electric co-op analogy, uh, electric cooperatives are starting to take on some of this fiber optic mm. last, last mile to the homework that's going on because because you can't do it alone. I mean, it's expensive infrastructure. And, and really, it's emerging as a fourth utility because no one can make a reasonable, rational argument that a child that grows up without access to the internet is going to be able to play and compete on any level with kids who are marinating in that from the time that they're born. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so 
facing this threat, and it's a threat that's been made. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that there's any any um, bills that have been forwarded in Congress yet. Um, what is the NFCB doing? What can stations do? What can concerned listeners do? So let me just give a, a really quick update of what is out there. And, and I'll start with just saying I can't speak for CPB, but I, clearly, you know, I'm very interested in their welfare and what, what how they're navigating. And they are focusing on protecting this appropriation of $445 million. And um, they they are trying to stay the course. Right. And Which we should fun- mention, I, uh, it's – that chunk of money is not all going to community radio. No, no, right. Yeah. It's right. mostly, so, it's mostly, uh, it's mostly big bird. <laughs> well, um, they sold big bird as they said television. in 2012. Wasn't that 2012 uh, campaign? Yeah, but they issue? sold big bird to HBO. I know. They, yeah. They, <laughs> Time so flies. 400, 445 million is the total, um, appropriation. And that is what CPB is, is trying hard to um, protect and to responsibly disperse in the manner that they have developed over many years. Nothing's really changed there. Nothing's been directly communicated to CPB by this administration. And there will be a full detailed budget supposedly coming out from this administration by late April. So all we're seeing in February is what people call the skinny budget, which is the major line items. There was a big flurry um, in the media because, you know, uh, people people associated with the Trump administration were holding in their hands the Heritage Foundation's blueprint for a balanced budget, which calls for the complete elimination of CPB, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Interestingly, though, that funding comes through this a subcommittee on labor, health, and human services, education-related agencies. So it's health and human services is where this money comes into the public media system. And the chair of that committee is Representative Tom Cole, who's a Republican from Oklahoma. The overall budget of that particular subset of the federal budget is $163 billion, all right? Mm-hmm. So $163 billion, you look at 445 going to CPB, $147 million to the National Endowment for the Arts, and $147 million to the National Endowment for the Humanities. That's a total of $741 million out of a $163 billion budget just in that um, – in, in health and human services alone. So a half percent or so. Yes, and 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 in terms of the entire federal budget, we're talking about less than 0.02%. And for the average uh, American taxpayer, we're talking about an annual cost of $1.35 for public media. So what people are saying is you can't balance a budget by going after small peanuts like this. And what's interesting is that there have been two pieces of legislation introduced to answer that question, and they are um, introduced by Representative Doug Lamborn from my home state of Colorado, um, unfortunately, in the 5th Congressional District. Um, One of the pieces of legislation is to eliminate funding for CPB. The second is to prohibit the use of federal funds to buy programming or pay membership dues to NPR. 
So it's a very thinly veiled attack at NPR, actually. And, um, and, and what happens is that people use their CSG grants, they reserve a certain portion of that to buy national programming because it's expensive and they want to they wanna be able to offer national news programming to listeners. So he's coming at it from a dual-pronged approach. However, Representative Lamborn has done this um, multiple times over many years, and that's why I was saying usually there's this outcry that says mm. no, not happening. But the you know the pressure is on in so many ways on, on steroids right now, um, and so that's the only thing that's officially on the table. But what we are keeping our eye on in in terms of this federal funding piece is what happens in late April. There's a continuing resolution that former President Obama signed December 9, two thousand sixteen which was was signaling uh, two years forward funding, which is what's been customary because it's so destabilizing to not have more than that to do your planning with. Um, so, so that is not something that I understand can be rescinded. I'm not a lawyer, but that's what I understand. But it is something that can be tweaked in the committee process. So we'll be watching that very closely. But also to your point, it's really true that community media is a much larger movement than stations that are receiving federal dollars through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that that larger movement is only gaining speed through low power FM, through um, through community stations that don't qualify or aren't large enough um, or serving enough of an area to qualify for these CSG grants, but they are funding their operations because people who are living in those communities care about locally based, locally focused public service media. And you need boots on the ground for, for this kind of stuff. So, you know, not just for news, but also for art and culture, which are major economic drivers in small communities across the country. So, so it seems to me that the American public is quite mobilized to make sure that their First Amendment rights are not squelched by overconsolidation of media, lack of access. And CPB has a role to play in that. But the larger role that we all play is as citizens, because every dollar that came into my station when I was a general manager from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, we leveraged six times over with listener support. Mm-hmm. So is this something which uh, folks who care about, uh, they shouldn't wait around in letting their elected officials, especially federal officials, know what their opinion is? Because there seems to be in this renaissance and people taking advantage of this sure. conduit to their local uh, representatives, yeah. taking that very seriously this year. So this is another issue they can certainly raise their voice on. It is. And you're absolutely right that, you know, the main the main message that I want to impart to people who appreciate this and listen to community based media is that that to to work on on articulating what you care, why you care about it at the local level. People think they have to go to Washington to find an audience with with uh, a member of Congress. You don't. You, you need to meet them in their home turf and in your home communities. And so you ask what NFCB is going to be doing. We've put together a coalition of other organizations representing constituencies that we have deep commitment to. And we have brought on board um, a campaign coordinator, Brian DeShazar, who was formerly the, the lead of the Pacifica Radio Archives and is a very creative guy in terms of 
message and harvesting the stories of people at the ground level and lifting that up. And so what we're going to be doing is sort of in concert with the larger Protect My Public Media campaign that's going on in the system, we're going to be customizing our own campaign for community radio in particular, and we'll be sending out updates about legislative activity or any kind of um, attacks on public media every other week to our partners who will disseminate it out through their networks. But in the intervening weeks too, we are just, and this was just last week, we got pretty much organized and we're off and running and we're conceptualizing action networks that can mobilize people to be on the streets and in the small theaters of their communities in creative ways, lifting up the beauty and the power of community media, not so much, rage against the machine, but more, this is my community and I refuse to imagine it without, um, without my local media. And there's nowhere else you're going to get that. Sally Kane, uh, CEO of the National Federation for Community Broadcasters. Is there anything that your organization is recommending that community stations specifically begin doing? I mean, mainly I'm asking because we, uh, I think Paul just mentioned, you know, individuals who care about community media calling their representatives on the phone. Uh, so my mind immediately jumped to, well, what, what about more collective action than individuals calling? Is there anything stations should be doing right now? So it's a tricky, it's a tricky subject because um, we are barred from um, using our airwaves to in, in, in endorse any kind of political candidates or political campaigns, referendums, any of that kind of thing. So the most powerful thing community radio stations can do is go out the door with their field recorders and collect the sentiments and the stories of the people in their community who are suffering from the loss, from the attack on public media and from the loss of a number of things that are really on the table, healthcare, mental health, um, energy issues, agriculture, you name it. These are all important things that are in, in you know, the scope of um, public national dialogue. And so I think that's one of the main roles that, that community radio stations can play is to um, record those voices and put them out there, give them voice on the airwaves that are public and that is a common space for all of us to celebrate our shared humanity and our common goals. Um, Internally, what public radio, what community radio leaders can do is to inform their board, their volunteers, and their members about um, what is happening with public media and with with taxpayer funding, federal investment in this kind of media, so that those people can have organized campaigns to call their local. Um, uh, representatives and leaders. Additionally, I think that as we head towards 2018, it's incumbent upon community radio stations to make sure that they're, they're getting their representatives on the phone and asking them where they stand on these issues and taking them to task on what their positions really are especially around emergency alert. <laughs> I mean, these are some, these are some of these stations are the only providers of that in, in the situations of where public health and safety are affected. And that's a very compelling message to carry. And then of course, stay tuned to the creative art filled stuff that we're going to be rolling out for actions that I can't, I can't speak about yet because <laughs> it's secret right now. Cause okay. we're just trying to, trying to figure it out. 
Well, and I think that's a good segue because you just sort of articulated a position of community radio there um, as this conduit, right, for voices uh, from the community that um, I read in this white paper that you mm-hmm. that the NFCB recently released, which is sort of advice for community stations in how to kind of manage themselves, manage their volunteers, manage what goes on on air in this in this very contentious political environment we have right now, and and specifically with regard to to, to President uh, Trump, and that was the advice that the NFCB gives there too was to go out and and bring these stories. Because and you, you you again you sort of said instead of sort of rage against the machine can you can you kind of explain that advice for us a little bit more and and, sure. and, and, and put that you know so that make it operational. Let me just start by saying that Ernesto Aguilar, who is um, NFCB's director of our membership program, is the architect and author of this white paper, and he's a fabulously talented writer and thinker. He deserves all the credit for it. <laughs> we all brainstormed that we were going to be doing it, but you know he was kind enough to add us all into the byline, and I said, "Take us out. You did it." Mm. So, um, it, what 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 he's what we've talked a lot about, and what I mean by that is that. When you open up a microphone, and, and you guys are radio heads, so you understand this, there's some strange alter ego that takes charge. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, what you might have intended as a two-minute mic break is a 10-minute monologue on what your cat did this morning or you know other kinds of things that might be working through your psyche or living in your heart or on your mind you know and and all of that is beautiful expression but what we're trying to say is that you know it's really important to be a conduit for the voices of the people in your community and to not abuse that microphone as your own personal soapbox because what we're really seeking here is to serve the public. And if a community radio station has DJs who are constantly spouting off in very pointed ways about particular segments of their community, then the reverse can actually happen. The intention is to actually build dialogue and build um, unity and at least understanding at the community level. So the way you do that is to make sure that you have a broad spectrum of voices that are being communicated. That does not mean that hate speech is something you put on the air just to balance out something else. But it does mean that those who are hosting and those who are presenting take a back seat to act the act the voices of the actual citizenry. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, I think we've we've advocated for that here on the podcast uh, numerous times that we would we'd much rather hear radio show hosts book guests and ask questions uh, either yeah in the field or in the radio studio rather than a uh, one man's monologue. <laughs> it so often mm-hmm. is. One man, <laughs> one, yeah. one, one guy's monologue with his friend who also agrees with him. Um, mm-hmm. You know that what you what you've articulated there, what what, what you and Ernesto and, and your staff have articulated there, sounds a lot like the sort of Pacifica ideal. I mean, if we if we kind of turn back the clock to the 1950s when Lou Hill was still active at Pacifica. So much of what the program they produced at KPFA was founded on this idea of dialogue. It's not that we will be just simply the voice of of, of pacifism, uh, you know, but that we will 
we will invite the clan on. Or as as Matthew Lassar, our uh, our colleague, are you sure about that one? Was that is that real? That's real. Okay. Oh no, yo, absolutely. Because now is, it's now that's all too real. That is absolutely real. But but as as Matthew, our 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 colleague here, you know, he had a whole episode about whether or not you should invite the clan on <laughs> on this podcast. Well, sure, maybe next yeah, week. I think- Ernesto talks about community radio in this white paper having served as a kind of media town hall. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're getting to is the ethic that says, you know, a civil society requires people to be able to have conversations and um, that, that we can serve as a nexus for those conversations. And, you know, I grew up in a small coal mining town on the western slope of Colorado and on a farm, and I've lived in rural America pretty much my whole life. Um, I've traveled the world, and I really love to be in wonderful cities, but that's that's the lifestyle that I was born and raised into and that is very dear to my heart. You know, as I was growing up, my my schoolmates, many of them went into the coal mines. Well, over the last 10, 15 years, those coal mines have all closed down. And the level of uh, frustration and alienation and and anger that um, coal miners were experiencing was really starting to be directed at the, quote, counterculture people. So so the, the, the diversity piece in, in many rural stations is not based on color or ethnicity or religion, it's more based on the hippies and the rednecks. Mm-hmm. And that's what was going on. And so, you know, we had a moment at KVNF where, sure, we could have, you know, we could have gone out to the environmental organizations and invited them all on and had a, you know, a lovely little discussion amongst ourselves about global warming and how this industry was being affected by market forces and blah, blah, blah. But there were coal miners literally standing on the corner for the first time in my whole life with signs saying coal mine proud. And so our job as a community radio station was to walk out the door and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And then to invite them into the studio. And and I remember this call-in show because I hosted it, and it was very tense. And, you know, we I stayed in that studio an hour after the show was over because nobody wanted to stop talking. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it's kind of like the whole thing of let the tape run and you get your best stuff at the end. The best stuff was the hour that we weren't even on the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had to hold a strong line because, you know, the, the most um, – the most forward sort of member of, of the environment, the environmental organization, one of the environmental organizations was calling people out by name and belittling them. And I had to like dress him down in the hall and just say, not okay. That's not why we're here. And, um, and, and then at the end, you know, a coal miner at one point said, he said, I guess we just don't understand each other. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room Mm -hmm. and people were near tears and they were trying to break through. They were trying to find a way to understand the position we were all in. And, and that to me was the real magic sauce of where a community-based broadcasting organization that isn't just parachuting into town to catch the story, but where you're actually standing in line at the grocery store next to the same people that you were trying to serve as a media outlet, where, where you really get to that is allowing yourself to be vulnerable and also being very very firm about standards and how we communicate. And I would say that Lou Hill is probably rolling in his grave about the disintegration of standards for civil dialogue within the Pacifica Foundation itself, much less in our society. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think it's hard to really argue with, with the point you've drawn out, especially with that example. And yet I come from, you know, more than a decade's time at, at a community radio station and that would, would be kind of considered rural, though probably not as rural as the station where you worked. And I know we could have the conversation about doing this sort of programming, but I also still have very vivid memories of the arguments and discussions that ensue, uh, where on the one hand, some some portion of your staff is going to be resistant uh, in part because they feel like, well, this is our one little space for mm-hmm. for progressive views, you know, mm-hmm. and they you know, they have their Rush Limbaugh ostensibly, mm-hmm. or they or you know, to some extent, they have NPR, they have CBS, they have CNN, they have Fox News, they have all that. This is ours, and the, they'll be a little product, a little protective of it from that standpoint. The yeah. other arguments I would hear is is that, well, well, no, I, you're not going to, you're asking me to censor myself. Really, what you're really saying is that I can't talk politics on my show, and that's just censorship, and I won't accept that either. Mm-hmm. How for the for the state for the program director, the station manager, the the public affairs director, who's who's you know, sympathetic to what you're laying out and what you're suggesting. What's your advice on, on how do you, how do you sort of, I mean, how do you implement it? Because in community radio, implementation is very rarely uh, top down. It's very rarely the right. say of one yep. one program wanna, director. It's about building a consensus. And I want to throw into the stew of this <laughs> moment. Uh, the the level of anxiety is such as mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we have not yet seen in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And so something that might have been reasonable in the 90s uh, is not going to seem so reasonable right now uh, when people are, are truly terrified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I really it? hear you guys. And I, I think w- what your, your, your input is indicative of the fact that you really do understand deeply what community radio sounds and feels like. And after all, let's let's openly acknowledge that this is a this is a medium that was born its genesis in the the protest movements of the late '60s against the Vietnam War. So um, clearly, you know, this is a voice of dissent often. And um, as Amy Goodman likes to say, and I think is a beautiful turn of phrase, is a voice for the voiceless. And and I agree with you that that is important and that there is huge amount of spectrum out there for commercial ventures that are bought and paid for by people who have specific political agendas that they're driving home. And, and that's something that we don't have to be part of and we don't have to um, enable. However... To your point about the day and age that we're living in and the anxiety levels, I also really hear that. And I've been feeling it long before Trump was elected. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, farm working communities in the Northwest who have a community station whose um, friends and neighbors are being harassed on the streets, beaten, um, uh, intimidated and deported. I mean, these are very real consequences. People are dying from this kind of hateful rhetoric. And it's not something to take lightly or to say we should all join hands and get to know one another. I get it. But how, but that still, that still is nothing that negates the fact that we have a legal framework that we have to operate in. Otherwise that license is gone. So what's better to have uh, people go rogue on the airwaves and get the FCC to snag the license and have nothing in that community 
or to have a calm, strategic, intelligent approach to how you serve people when they're navigating turbulent times. And again, I think you can capture the anxiety and you can capture the level of dismay and fear and concern by getting out into communities and seeing what's going on. So if you have a huge segment of your community showing up, look at look at the conservative little state of Utah and over a thousand people showing up to their um, representative Jeff uh, Chaffetz's town Josh. hall meeting. Yeah. Um, um, and, and booing him off the stage, basically. I mean, that's that speaks volumes. You don't need you don't need a DJ to open up the microphone and talk about how upset they are if you can take a microphone out and capture the the audio of the sound of that and play it back and say, this is what's happening across the country and tell that story. That's a really important place to go. And I also think music speaks very loudly and it speaks for itself. And so there, there's um, a lot of music that inspires people to um, feel connected to their fellow man or woman um, that that makes them laugh out loud with the cleverness of a critique of um, capitalism or government or whatever you want to fill in the blank with. And, and that's another beautiful way to um, illustrate and showcase what the experience of many human beings um, are having right now in, in this climate. And beyond that, beyond the airwaves, I think community radio stations themselves can be spaces where people can feel safe. And, you know, living in the community where I did, we, we had a safe space zone on our window that says if you're feeling unsafe and threatened and harassed because of whatever it is, your gender, your sexual preference, whatever, your color, then come in here and you'll be safe. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a mother and you have a small child and you're in town and there's nowhere to nurse your child. Come in here. We have a back room that you can be in that's safe and calm and um, and private for you, you know, and and really to walk the talk of being places that model tolerance, but also compassion and kindness and um, civil civil discourse. Mm-hmm. I think that's really great to call out and, and to and to bring up to the surface because we're seeing again that idea spread as uh, stores and other organizations and spaces of all kinds are putting out these positive affirmations on you know actual signage in their windows saying that you are safe here but that radio stations and community radio stations in particular are are, are a big part of it and have been historically in, in many cases, in many communities where maybe that wasn't so true in other places and, and to, to not lose sight of, of, sure. of, of that, I think, important and history. That's what we're going to do with our campaign is called Community Counts Coalition. And that's what we're going to do is, is take the positive message of, look, this is a part of our history. There are things that never would have been accomplished that many people are proud of had we not all come together and mobilized the civil rights movement. For example, um, the Pacifica Networks were the ones that that moved that right on down the road with their commitment to hearing the voices of people um, out on the street, what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're feeling. So we have that moment in front of us again, and we can document it. We can put it out there. Yeah, I think it's great advice to people who have the privilege of of being around radio also to um to affirm just as often as you denounce and deny, you know, to to talk about 
um, you know, you might start if you're somebody like me uh, with a with a negative framework uh, stuck in their brains. You might start with the thing that made you angry, but to remember uh, to bring it back to the the affirmation. You're you're angry about X because it's because you really are trying to affirm why and to talk more about the positive uh, values that we care about that are under threat. Uh, that, least, that's what I think. Yeah, yeah. just as often as we uh, yeah. denounce Trump, and, and and don't just wait for fun drive time. Don't <laughs> just wait for pledge drive time. I mean, I mean seriously. You know, uh, so much of time I think community radio loses an opportunity because the only time that you talk about community radio and the station and 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 all of these positive goals yeah, affirming the that values you're there the for affirming the values of the station is during fun drives and and as someone who's worked many many fun drives sometimes you know you would people call up on the air and I would talk to both listeners elsewhere or hear them call on the um, on the line and say I love this time of year because you're all so positive and it's all <laughs> so yeah. I'm reminded about what I love about what you do and perhaps you know one way to begin to to also draw that consensus in your own station is to is to preface it with the, with these positive this is this is the world we're still building here or we're hoping to build well and i think it's a perfect segue to one point which what i wanted to make too which is that it's not even it, – it's more than just the role you're playing in the larger community or the larger society. It's all about what are you modeling within the little nonprofit mm-hmm. <laughs> itself. So so if you're a DJ who's coming in, um, you should have the courtesy to forward promote who the next DJ is. <laughs> you should have the courage to listen to what they're saying and pay attention to what they're doing on the air so that you can honor that in the way that you segue to the next show. You know, arriving two minutes beforehand without a single thought about who was before you or anything they played or cared about or said is not good radio and it's inconsiderate as human beings. So, you know, I, I like to call out the organizations themselves and say, if you want to work for a more peaceful world and, and a higher level of kindness and consideration shown to one another, then let's show it in the way we govern ourselves. Let's show it in the boardroom. Let's show it in the DJ meetings. You know, there's a lot of really toxic, awful stuff that happens with people in these tiny little community radio organizations, which, and they're not all tiny. Some of them are big powerhouse stations, but I've seen it across the board up to the largest public media organizations in the country is um, the, the, the constant thing of people who are not able to be self-honest, are not able to bring their best self forward, and are packing major agendas that have to do with ego and fear. <laughs> and when you do that, when you do that, you bring everything down around you. So oh. it's not enough to just talk about the message that we're sending out on the airwave. We have to also really look at what message is emanating from our own heart and how is that affecting our own organization? I hear you, Sally. I really hear you <laughs> on that point. All my experience in community radio and it is the people whose heart was open and who were thinking about each other and not just their own state, uh, their own show and their own ego or their own agenda. Um, it's those open hearted people I most enjoyed that, that gave me my greatest memories, uh, my warmest memories of working in community radio, whether they were on air or, or we just had the one guy who came in to water the plants, but, mm-hmm. uh, what a, what a, what a positive, uh, presence yeah, that day that, that my was. friend did and all the is. dishes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and my, modeling that. My but, friend, 
my friend Felix Belmont, who's 98 years old and has been um, the one who's raised the most money for the station, has a show tunes show on a Sunday afternoon and, you know, represents us in intrepidly in uh, in many aspects of his life and he will tell you that um once he retired and got involved with community radio that it's the closest family that he's ever experienced and and that it's provided meaning in his life because you know ultimately at the bottom of it any creative enterprise why do we do it because it gives us meaning Mm -hmm. i think that's a great place to uh wind it up uh, leaving with some positive affirmations here uh, and reminders that I think any one of us can use, even whether you're podcasting like we are or whether you're right. doing it at the at a community radio station. Sally, mm-hmm. uh, thank you so much for taking some time for us today on the podcast. Uh, where can people learn more about the NFCB? So nfcb.org. And um, you can also call 970-279-3411. We are standing by and so eager to engage. And I want to thank you both for all that you put into um, your advocacy and drawing awareness to community radio. Um, we really appreciate it. We're really we're really devoted to um, reading what you all have to say and, and to the podcast. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, thank you for all your hard work, uh, Sally, and everyone there at the NFCB. Um, it's, a, it's a really positive legacy, and it's, I'm so glad that we're able to collaborate like this. Me too. Well, that'll wrap it up for another episode of Radio Survivor, this, this, this radio program, this podcast that you just listened to. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Paul. Oh, well, big thanks to Sally Kane and, of course, to Jennifer Waits uh, for both participating. Uh, there's a lot of food for thought this time around. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Any responses? Does it does it bring up anything in your mind or is there someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Um, if you have a commentary at all that you'd like to share, um, this sort of interview got kicked off really more than a week ago because Ernesto sent us a commentary and uh, said, you know, we're working on these other things. And I said, well, why don't you come on the show? And he goes, you know, you should talk to Sally, our CEO, who we haven't had on the show before. So we're like, great. We've wanted to have uh, Sally Kane on for a long time and we were able to do so. So we really do listen. We try our best yeah, to pay attention every, every, and follow up. Every email that gets sent to that email address is uh, very precious to us. So yes. go ahead, you, uh, you, the listener there sitting sitting there with your earbuds in. Send us an email and tell us tell us how this program has been received in your brain. Absolutely. And we could definitely use your help to keep producing it, to keep doing everything we do at Radio Survivor. Uh, we still have the dreams of turning this into uh, a syndicated show, which would require a little bit more work on our on our side to, to be able to do that. Um, we also want to be able to continue to send Jennifer out to go and do radio tours, tours of stations, and go to conferences and report back, and, and to continue this sort of networking enterprise, which I think, to some extent, uh, Radio Survivor has turned into uh, every Every dollar you could contribute is very, very helpful. One way to do it is via our Patreon uh, social funding campaign where you contribute uh, an amount every single month. Could be a dollar, two dollars, five dollars or more. Every dollar matters. It really helps. Go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Radio Survivor. I signed up. I, I, uh, this is a, this is a tangent, but I'm taking it. We were supposed to just uh, roll the credits and get out of here. But I signed up uh, this week for my first 
uh, I'm a Patreon, yeah. uh, a patron of a podcast that I wanted to hear. I've been, for the I've first been making time good on that, life. you know. So I made a commitment for this year to to give away more of my money, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which includes things like oh I don't know the ACLU mm-hmm. and Planned Parenthood. I, I know that you have a uh, a newspaper subscription for the first time. <laughs> so that's like that's a Indeed. way to give your money and, to the media. And, but also I've been going out and trying to and, and finding uh, podcasts and mm-hmm. and some of them are video series. Some people are video makers on YouTube who make stuff that I really like and really enjoy and making sure, yeah, they're getting a few shekels yeah, from it's me nice. every I'm month paying as well. $5 an episode for, for a podcast oh, wow. that I appreciate. I know, right? That's really and, generous. And that podcast, well, that's, that's their minimum. Oh, wow. That's okay. all that they will not share. They, they, they put the entire thing behind a paywall. Okay. And that's, and it's, it's good that they did that. Cause I would not have been motivated <laughs> to give away my money if they hadn't, but I, um, I'm excited. I'm hoping it comes back to me. Uh, tenfold someday soon. Yeah, in, in Patreon dollars. Right. I mean, I've. I think you know, it, it's great that these things to for me that they exist because you know I'm I get to consume all sorts of really interesting, yeah, not really commercialized and stuff. Yeah, that would I would never have been able to get my hands on if it weren't for YouTube and podcasts. And it's a strange feeling. I I'm gonna get a little personal here in the in the credits, and uh, I've been a little bit bored of podcasts of late. Uh, is, you know, in in 2017, I've listened to very few episodes of very few podcasts, and paying for the privilege of downloading this particular show uh, has uh, reignited a little bit of joy for the podcast. You know, it's a little special to have to <laughs> to, to have to actually purchase a show. Uh, although, um, anyway, I haven't given them. I promised to give them money. They haven't asked for it yet. And meanwhile, well, because you only get charged when yeah, the episode actually drops. And meanwhile, drops. Yeah. I have access to all of their uh, all of their podcasts because we're a, sort of a, a multimedia enterprise. We do the once a month sort of thing to just sort of keep the operations here at Radio Survivor, yeah. right? Anada. Uh, when a you say we, episode. you could be speaking for any number of entities. Well, I, well if I'm speaking here on, <laughs> on on Radio Survivor, I speak only about the royal we, the royal Radio Survivor, mm-hmm. kings and queens, princesses and princes. Dukes and Duchesses, us all. Anyway, thank you so much <laughs> for listening. Check us out at radiosurvivor.com. Yeah, are you are you supporting any other podcast projects or media enterprises other than community radio that you want to share with us? Your special feelings. We'd love to know. Yeah. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com or tweet us at radiosurvivor. You could tweet me directly. I'm at Media Geek. Oh, we're, we're plugging our Twitters Why again. Why not? My, my Twitter is at E-C-K-L-E-I-N. I've been extremely cynical and sarcastic lately on my Twitter feed. I've been all over the darn place. Uh, and, uh, of course, we're on Facebook at uh, Radio Survivor as well. We're, we're so easy to find. We, we, we dominate those keywords now, and I'm so happy for that. Uh, yes, thank you so much for taking an hour and 15 minutes out of your day to spend with us. We really do appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to spending time with you next week. Yeah, thank you, everybody.